Welcome to Wellness Realness with Christina Rice. I'm your host, Christina. I'm a nutritional therapy practitioner, holistic health coach, and the creator of ChristinaRiceWellness.com, where you can find my blog, recipes, services, programs, and ebooks. In this podcast, I'll be discussing all things related to health and wellness, and I promise to always keep it very real. If you'd like to submit a question or a topic for me to discuss, send it in to podcast at ChristinaRiceWellness.com. Don't forget to subscribe, leave a rating and a review on iTunes, and join the Facebook group, Wellness Realness Podcast Tribe. Welcome back to the show. I am very excited for you guys to hear this conversation with today's guest, Dr. Stephen Cabral, who has really dedicated his life to reaching as many people as he can and helping as many people as possible to reach their health and wellness goals. I think really stemming from his own personal health journey. And now he shares so much of his information with as many people as possible. And I know that many of you also have a similar mission. Sometimes it's from your own personal health journey. Other times it's from watching a loved one struggle with their health. Other times just from learning about this and being interested in it. I know for me, I had a really strong call to help as many people on their own health journeys as possible after going through my own health struggles. And that is what initially led me to become a primal health coach before I became an NTP. And I joined the Primal Health Coach program as my first step to being able to coach people and just make a bigger impact on their lives. The Primal Health Coach Institute really was an important stepping stone for me to launch my health and wellness business. And if you've been following me for a while, you know how much I love the Primal Blueprint, Primal Kitchen, basically anything Mark Sisson puts together. And when he launched the Primal Health Coach Institute, I was immediately intrigued, wanted to learn more, and was a little shocked that more people weren't talking about it which is why now I really want to get the word out about it because it was truly such an incredible program. And after having gone through it and also learning more about what other programs are like and talking to some of my colleagues about their experiences in their health coaching programs, I really believe that this health coaching program is incredible and I want more of you to experience it. The reason why I was so drawn to the Primal Health Coach Institute was because I wanted to be a health coach and I really wanted a certification that was all about my chosen niche. So real food eating, ancestral health, evolutionary biology, because that's really what I believe in. And it ended up being one of the best decisions of my life and an amazing way to launch my business. This program is very in-depth, and like I mentioned, it focuses on ancestral health principles specifically. It starts off with a comprehensive nutrition and health sciences education. You're going to get a college-level course, and you're not just skimming the surface. You get a ton of really helpful, useful information. You get to learn how the body actually works. It's a philosophy of wellness based on the interconnectedness of every single choice we make from the food we eat to the activities we do to our sleep, our stress, and how all those choices affect the body at a cellular level. 
Beyond that, they are very committed to making sure you succeed as a health coach. So the Primal Health Coach Institute has a ton of different chapters, exercises, and a full resource center devoted to business development, marketing, and sales training. So they really truly train you in mastering coaching and the nuts and bolts of building the business. You have different exercises that will handhold you through the process of starting a business from scratch, how to build a profitable coaching infrastructure, And you get access to the Business Resource Center once you graduate, which has a ton of already made-for-you materials, handouts, flyers, forms, marketing graphics that you can all use with your clients. And they even have a 12-week coaching program that you can use with your clients from day one. So you are all set to go. You can also be put in their database of health coaches so that clients can find you that way. And you always have ongoing support through the private Facebook group, the monthly live webinars, and the mastermind meetups. So if you're interested in becoming a health coach, if you're passionate about the primal and paleo way of life and the ancestral way of living, then head over to primalhealthcoach.com realness to get their free ebook, how to be a health coach, which gives you more information on the process of becoming a health coach and five easy steps. And you'll learn more about the Primal Health Coach program in general. So again, just go to primalhealthcoach.com slash realness, R-E-A-L-N-E-S-S to get that free ebook. And if you're already ready to sign up for the program, which is done online at your own pace, then you can use the discount code COACH200, C-O-A-C-H-200 for $200 off. You can also book a discovery call with Laura, who is in charge of admissions. All of that information will be at primalhealthcoach.com slash realness. Health coaches are becoming a very important part of many doctors' practices, both naturopathic doctors, functional medicine doctors, all kinds of doctors, because we need as much help as we can get. And I know that Dr. Stephen Cabral himself has a whole team of people who helps him reach as many people as he can. So let's talk about today's guest, Dr. Stephen Cabral. I'm a huge fan of him. I absolutely love his work. He is a board-certified naturopathic doctor and founder of the Cabral Wellness Institute and stephencabral.com. He's also the host of the Cabral Concept, an amazing podcast, a ton of information on there. He has a pretty incredible health story himself. When he was 17, he was diagnosed with a life-altering illness and given no hope for recovery and suffered for many years. It wasn't until he traveled around, learned more about combining Ayurvedic healing practices with naturopathic and functional medicine that he really started to understand how to fully rebalance the body. Dr. Cabral has a practice in Boston and also an online practice where him and his team use functional medicine lab testing and personalized wellness plans to help people rebalance their bodies and recover from autoimmune conditions, thyroid conditions, fatigue, hormone balances, weight gain, digestive issues, mood problems, skin issues, and dozens of other hard-to-treat health conditions. Dr. Cabral is just truly such a wealth of knowledge, and I was so excited to chat with him about everything I possibly could in this episode, and we cover a wide range of topics, but Dr. Cabral just really fascinates me because I don't think there's anyone else who is combining Ayurveda and naturopathic and functional medicine in the same way he is, and he's really not afraid to 
kind of go against the grain and he doesn't just follow trends he talks about what he's seen in practice and I love this combination of eastern and western medicine and I just really respect his mission I love the content he puts out I learned so much from him he has an incredible podcast and I first found out about him when I heard him on Ben Pokolsky's podcast the muscle expert podcast and then mind pump media and I was like who is this? He is awesome. And then started diving into his work and wanted to get him on the podcast and then it happened. So I'm very excited. I think that the topics we cover in this episode, a lot of you will resonate with and find fascinating. I realized after we recorded this that for anyone listening who doesn't know about Addison's disease because Dr. Cabral discusses Addison's disease, it's a disease that's relatively rare where your body doesn't produce enough cortisol. So just to clear that up because I know some of you might not be familiar with that because I haven't talked about Addison's disease before on this podcast, but it's also known as adrenal insufficiency. So hopefully that gives you some context and Dr. Cabral will explain more about what that was like for him. So I'm super excited for you guys to hear this. I have been dying to release this episode. I hope you enjoy it as much as I do. And without further ado, here is Dr. Stephen Cabral. You're almost overwhelming to chat with because I feel like I could literally talk to you about any topic. Like I, a lot of people I interview have, you know, kind of one thing, but you seem to really hit on every single issue or health issue. Um, but let's just kind of start at the beginning of how you got into naturopathic medicine. Yeah, so for me it was you know, really, it was never a plan. A lot of people plan to become a doctor when they're younger or they, you know, plan to have a specific job. For me, I never had that goal and I never had that plan. Uh, I was just a normal teenager and then all of a sudden I got sick, uh, violently sick when I was 17 years old. And it was uh, a mystery-based illness. It was one of those things where you wake up one day and you know that something's very wrong. You go to the doctors and they can't tell you what it is. So I spent years of my life being shuffled from one specialist to another, seeing over two dozen different specialists, really the best in the world. I can't say that they weren't, but what they were looking for uh, was not a lab test. They, weren't, they simply weren't going to find it on blood work alone. So after years of going from the best of the best, or what I thought was the best of the best, I finally got connected with a functional medicine doctor. And 20 years ago, functional medicine was really in its infancy, not a lot of people talking about it. But I was fortunate enough to be introduced to it. And from that day on, my life changed. You know, I didn't know how I was going to get well, but there was a doctor willing to spend an hour with me, which, you know, back then and or even now, an hour with your doctor would be a phenomenal amount of time. And he listened to my story and he said, I think I know what's going on. I want to send out for some what's called subclinical or functional medicine lab testing. And again, from that day on, the, the book had been opened and I haven't stopped reading ever since. What, what were your symptoms? Like what exactly were you dealing with? So my immune system started to shut down at 17. So it's hard to describe when your immune system starts to shut down because so much goes wrong. So what had happened for three years before that, I was on antibiotics. So I was on um, amoxicillin twice a day at these big, big bottles. And I was on it twice a day for acne, for skin-based issues. Uh, previous to that, growing up, I, I probably took, you know, I would say antibiotics five, six times, maybe maybe eight times a year. Anytime we would get a cold, it was automatically antibiotics. It was just my family physician. It's how they practice. And I don't think that I'm alone in that. Many, many other people, I know your story. 
you went through a lot of that, you know, yourself with just the mystery based illness and the other issues and acne. And well, what happened with me is that my body had just broken down at that point taking 3,000 plus capsules of amoxicillin had wiped out a lot of my good gut bacteria. It allowed for a flourishing of candida or yeast-based overgrowth. I had SIBO, I had candida overgrowth. Um, I had hypoglycemia, which I know that you had as well. And this, this basically went unnoticed, untouched. And all of a sudden, I woke up one day with uh, massive swollen glands in the side of my neck and my armpits and my groin, my heart rate. I was in basically a supraventricular tachycardia, which means your heart rate essentially can't come down. It's stuck in the 160s and 180s or more. And um, from there, later diagnosed with Addison's disease, type 2 diabetes, rheumatoid arthritis, myalgic encephalomyelitis, and a host of other fun medical names. But the <laughs> truth was that I wasn't going to get better no matter what, no matter what name they gave me because none of those things represent the actual imbalance that caused them. Can you go get into that more? What do you mean by that? So everyone likes I, – I, all I wanted when I was 17, 18, 19 years old was to be told what I, was wrong with me. That's it. So I took a saliva-based test, hormone test, and I found out I had low levels of cortisol. So low that my functional medicine doctor said, you know what, why don't you take this to your primary care? Show them that. They may want to test you for Addison's. So I took it to my primary care. That was a big mistake. And they tested me for Addison's disease, which is called an ACTH stim test. They basically just want to see if you produce cortisol, if they inject adrenocorticotropin hormone into your body, which is supposed to spike your basically your sympathetic nervous system, your fight or flight. Well, mine didn't. And so that's when you know that you have real adrenal issues. Your body isn't responding to the call for cortisol. Now, we all think of cortisol as a bad thing because in the exercise world and kind of the health world, too much cortisol leads to all sorts of oxidative damage and breaks down your body and et cetera. Well, too little is also bad. And so what happened to me, I couldn't produce any anti-inflammatories. I couldn't produce any get up and go, brain fog flu-like symptoms, just real low-level um, depression, anxiety all the time. But what I was given was a disease name called Addison's. And then I found out I had rheumatoid arthritis. Then they did a glucose tolerance test and I had type 2 diabetes. Well, they kept giving me all these medications. But the medications were simply to address a disease name. It had nothing to do with why I got there in the first place. And so when I – again, this is in the late 90s. So there is no internet. I mean it's hard to believe at time. When you couldn't just look at things up, but it didn't exist. You'd have to go get a book. And so for me, that's what I did. I just started reading hundreds and then thousands of books um, throughout my 20s. And I realized that most people died at a very young age from what I was suffering from if I got it that young. So I was unwilling. I was very stubborn, still am to this day, of, uh, <laughs> of accepting that, that you know, terminal belief that uh, because I have this, that I'm going to have a very short life. So what I look at now and I try to teach others, is that your disease is just a name. It means nothing. It's a collection of symptoms that you have, and those symptoms have an underlying imbalance, typically a toxicity or a deficiency or often both. If we figure out what those toxicities and deficiencies are, we can change your life. So, so okay, you just listed out a bunch of names, labels of things that were wrong with you. And when you're faced with all of that, where do you start? Well, at first you are overwhelmed, you know, you're overwhelmed <laughs> yeah. at like, how would I possibly, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know where to go. Um, I, you know, I live in Medford, Massachusetts at that time. Um, 
you know, going back and forth, obviously from college and then back home. And that's where my doctors were. So, you know, what I did was, uh, I, I found that functional medicine doctor and he did a food sensitivity test and he said, okay, you know, you're eating a lot of the foods that you're sensitive to. And again, he was a really smart guy, really great guy. And he said, most likely you're reacting to all these different foods because you have a lot of intestinal permeability. Your body, your blood is literally seeing all these proteins from these foods come through. But there were some big ones. I mean, I was eating eggs and I was eating chicken and I was eating almonds and they were very high, which means every time I ate those, from what's called an IgG inflammatory perspective, I would get inflammation, not when I ate them, but a day or two days or even up to three days later, which means that I was basically what I call filling up this rain barrel of just every day adding more to my body that my body couldn't handle, even though I thought chicken, almonds, and kidney beans, and a host of other things that I was eating were healthy for me. And it's not that they're unhealthy foods, but for me, they weren't healthy. So essentially, he showed me I had candied overgrowth. And then I went in, again, for conventional medicine. I had endoscopy because I had acid reflux all the time. And they saw um, candida actually growing up into my esophagus. That's how bad it was. So I used a combination of pharmaceutical drugs and I used um, natural products as well. And the, again, the problem was I was still in that conventional medicine mindset. And every time you use conventional medicine, I'm not saying it doesn't work, but there's a price you have to pay and it's typically a relapse and it will be a month, two months or three months later. I mean, think of all the SIBO medication out there. Does it work? Sure, for that specific bacteria, but it does nothing for candida overgrowth. So I was killing bacteria, but then I was allowing candida to flourish, right? And I, wasn't, I didn't know how to repopulate. I didn't know how to seal my gut at the time. So for me, it was, it was a long journey. I mean, no one should ever have to take that long of a journey. It took me 10 years before I finally met my mentor who pulled it all together. And, you know, that was around 2006, 2007 or so at the time. And then I finally started to heal. And today, I'm dis-ease free, as I say. There's nothing wrong with me. My blood work, my saliva, the urine, the stool test, the digestive, everything is a clean bill of health. And I feel better than I do. I feel better than I did at 17. We'll put it that way. Every year, I have more energy. Every year, I feel better. That's amazing. And I'm glad you shared that because I've actually been talking about this a lot with people um, who are struggling and they don't really have a, they don't realize how long it can take. And Obviously, we wouldn't want anyone to have to wait 10 years to start feeling better, but sometimes it can take years. Um, and I think a lot of people, we because we grow up in the society with, with conventional medicine and people are used to taking a pill and they're better in a few days. And so if they have to wait, wait a few weeks or months or years, they feel like they're not making any progress. Um, but these things can take a long time. And I'm curious, though, when you're going through all of this, like, what were your, your family and friends thinking or saying? Like, were they, did they support you or did they believe you or how was their reaction? Yeah, I mean, it was tough because, I mean, I'm a, a teenager and in college. So, um, I mean, there's no doubt about it. I don't think I admitted it or, you know, would talk about it at the time. But for sure, I had some serious um, emotional and mental based issues for sure because, I knew it was the prime of my life. Like I knew, like I'm in college right now and this is my senior year of high school. I was a three sport athlete. I was a national honor society. I was all these things that I was doing, I think to build up my ego, feed my ego. And all of that was crushed. I mean, I was maybe the worst one, you know, when I tried to come back in the spring of my track team, couldn't do it. Just left the team. I mean, I was, went from one of their, you know, pretty good players to one of the worst. 
uh, couldn't do basketball that fall, could barely take the SATs. I had so much brain fog. So, you know, that was a real strike to the ego. I did my best to hide it uh, from friends for sure. They never knew to the extent except that I just wasn't able to go out the three nights in a row like they were. I just knew that every time I did that, I relapsed. I got sick. I got swollen glands. And I didn't just get a, a cold. I mean, I got pneumonia. I got bronchitis because my immune system just couldn't recover. Most people, common cold goes away in three to four days, especially if you give it a little rest, you give it a little TLC. But with me, there was nothing I couldn't recover. I mean, there was nothing there. So, and I didn't know, I didn't know at the time how to, how to do that naturally. So, um, I do have to say my, my family was very supportive, especially my mother taking me from doctor appointment to doctor appointment, but I know that it weared on her. And again, so that weared on my psyche and I spent many sleepless nights. We'll put it that way. It was not, it was a very dark time, which is why, you know, personally I've dedicated my life to making sure that other people don't have to suffer in that way because it's needless. You know, I agree with you that to be at your very best may take a while, but I'm, I'm telling you right now, whatever you suffer from, you can at least, I mean, most people are going to recover within four to six months from mm -hmm. debilitating mm -hmm. issues. But when you have myalgic encephalomyelitis or true like Addison's or true um, just debilitating rheumatoid arthritis or something that like is deep in Ayurvedic medicine, they, they talk about it at, at the deepest level. It's going to take some time. And that's because your body's a living organism. I mean, your red blood cells don't turn over for 120 days. You can't make them turn over faster and you wouldn't want to because you'd be in more of a catabolic condition. So that's the goal is, is to get through a couple cycles of turning over those mitochondria. And, you know, if you're on a good program, I, I believe that you'll see Sure. You, but here's the thing. I, I just, I, I know that I'm being long winded right now, but I didn't know the level of health I could achieve that I'm at today, more than 20 years later. You know, how is it possible that I feel better now than in my twenties? That's not supposed to happen. So people feel dramatically better in four to six months, but yes, you're right. They're going to feel even better in another 18 months, but they wouldn't even know that that existed. It's a new normal for them. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's very motivating. And I think it's hard for people to believe that until they actually experience it. Um, and I even think like, I mean, we have so much in common. It's kind of creeping me out. But um, <laughs> like I think me at my worst right now, I still feel better than I felt when I thought I felt normal when I was in high school. Does that make sense? Oh, without a doubt. I mean, I totally agree with you now. You know, I'm actually, so right now I'm two days out from being at like a, a, a pretty bad, you know, just a cold, mm -hmm. but now I laugh at it. It's a joke to me because I've been through this. I've already know, like, that's why, I mean, it's cliche, right? But whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And that's, it's not like, I believe that I actually now I say, okay, I used to get worried. Okay. I, I have to go and speak at this event. I can't get a cold or this or that. It's no big deal. It's gone in three days. If you if you know how to take care of your body, you already built your body back up. These things are they don't stop you from doing anything. And you need the perspective of life and the gratitude to understand that. Absolutely. It's funny. I was just laughing with my friend the other day because I haven't owned I don't own any cold medicine. And then I saw someone on the plane with it and I was like, People still use that? Like, <laughs> I forgot that people still use NyQuil. Um, but I kind of, I want to talk a bit more about how you got into Ayurveda and like how you combine that with naturopathic medicine. Yeah, so for me, I had, I had been touching on Ayurvedic medicine from a lot of the natural health reading I've been doing, but really at a surface level, which, you know, I see a lot of that right now. It's kind of like thinking about your body type and those types of things. But Ayurveda 
it goes back at least 6,000 years. And that's what we have for recorded history, five to 6,000 years. But Ayurveda is the original form of medicine. It literally means the science or truth of life. And it's very deep. There's eight branches to it. So when I met my mentor, Dr. Pete, she had written the textbooks for, I would say, the foremost authority on Ayurveda in the United States. And that was uh, Vazant Lad. And he was an Ayurvedic doctor in India, came over to spread the message of Ayurveda here in the U.S., many great disciples under him. And I met her by reading her book. So like all of this is, I talk about this all the time, is that you don't know how you're going to get well. It's like you just have to keep moving forward. That's it. It's no one lab test, one supplement, one meeting, one doctor, one anything, one podcast. It's like you just have to keep accumulating and understanding that there's like not one single best way to do it. There are more scientific ways. There are more, there are better blueprints, but I met her, I contacted her. Lo and behold, she was in Maine about a three hour bus ride from me. I was a June. Well, I don't know. No, actually I wasn't. I was out of college. I took a bus ride up to see her and, um, it changed my life. I mean, it really did. She brought together naturopathic medicine, Ayurvedic medicine and genetic testing this is um, 11, 12 years ago before anybody was talking about this. Like, and it was, it was life-changing. From there, I mean, I'm a person that gets pretty obsessed. And uh, since this is my pretty much one and only passion, uh, I went full in on this and went back, got my degree. But I knew that I wanted my subspecialty to be in Ayurvedic medicine. You can choose uh, many things, homeopathy, traditional Chinese medicine, acupuncture, whatever you'd like. Uh, I, I just knew that Ayurveda spoke to me and I wanted to combine the best of the old with the best of the state of the art new. Do you ever find that like, and like Ayurvedic teachings will conflict with what, what you studied in other contexts, like as a doctor, like how do you decide what to move forward with when you're looking at a treatment plan for someone? You, do you understand what I'm saying? Like, um, yes. like how, how do you, how do you balance that? Well, there's two things to that, and that, that's a great question. I don't think I've been asked that before. Um, the issue is that in Ayurveda, you're looking at it from what's called a um, prakriti, which is the person's genotype. It's, it's their genetics, how we think of it. And then there's the vakriti, which is their phenotype. It's who they become. So if you're someone who's naturally, let's say, 160 pounds, well, because of sickness and poor health and virus issues, all sorts of things, more malabsorption, you could be 135 pounds and, and look not well. Or that same 160-pound person could be 190 pounds, 200 pounds. Now, you could work on their genotype or where they're currently at today. And that's the confusing part about Ayurveda. It's not confusing. It's just that Ayurveda is so deep. It takes years of study and practice. Uh, there is no other form of medicine that would take that long except maybe traditional Chinese medicine. Um, and that's up there as well, which traditional Chinese medicine got its base from Ayurvedic medicine as the trade routes were open and they traded knowledge as well. So here's what I do. I look at the lab testing of functional medicine and naturopathic medicine. It's basically one and the same. And then I use the brilliance and methodology of Ayurvedic medicine and all forms of medicine, bioregulatory medicine, to choose my overall lifestyle. And I'm using treatment in quotations because naturopathic doctors do not treat, diagnose, or cure disease. We leave that up to conventional medicine. Um, 
but it's always from an Ayurvedic perspective, and here's why. Every time I thought that I knew more because of my current day knowledge than Ayurveda, I've always been wrong. So now I just realize that I, I don't have the, the wisdom or foresight or hindsight or experience to know exactly what they mean by this in Ayurveda. Yeah, it's very it's very intricate, Ayurvedic medicine, and I think especially now like it's becoming more popular in the mainstream, which is great but you know i see a lot of books being put out and you know you can take a test to figure out your dosha and then you'll have diet and lifestyle recommendations and people just want people just want to check a box and say oh you know i'm a vata this is what i eat this is what i this is how i exercise and like this should work and then it might not work um because there's other things going on um so that's why you know i think it's hard when we try and take such complicated subjects and distill it down into like here's a book just follow it exactly because even something like like ayurvedic medicine i just feel like a lot of people are trying to distill it into like here are the the three doshas pick your dosha and this is what you do and it's not that simple it's and it's actually dangerous i mean it really is i i don't i never speak ill of any of what all the great information that people are spreading but when you put out a 20 question ayurvedic quiz and then you're basing it off of that Especially if you're taking it for yourself, it's so skewed. I mean, I have, you know, I've, I've done this uh, for a little bit, and every guy puts themselves down as the pitta or mesomorph, at least majority, and every woman puts themselves down as majority of vata. And it's because of societal and cultural based things, but it's also because of the mental aspect of it. But we're giving people physical regimens based on mental dosha readings. Mm-hmm. So, Meaning the vata is more of the fast-paced, go, 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 always thinking, always moving. Well, I mean, who isn't? Is, is anyone not the vata? Right? Like it's like, of course. But that should not then be the basis of your diet and, and a lot of other things. Uh, maybe the exercise. But that's why I just I get a little worried about that, to be honest with you. I'm glad you said that because I think people need to hear it, <laughs> honestly. Um, I'm curious if there are any like traditional Ayurvedic teachings that you – just disagree with and I'm mm. kind of thinking more on terms of like I think it's really interesting how um they talk about and sorry if I say anything incorrectly I'm definitely not an expert on this at all um but um sort of like times throughout the day and like how there are I- ideal times to eat and work and exercise and those types of things and kind of how your schedule can impact your health um and I was just kind of curious if generally you subscribe to those or if there's anything you feel like no I don't actually usually do that yeah and that's you know what I was just going to say this the same as you so if I had to pick one out it's not a disagreement with Ayurveda they're correct however this is 6,000 years later Mm -hmm. and we are no longer living by the natural rhythms of the world it's not their fault they're correct but your normal diphasic rhythm for the day looks like this you're going to wake up if you lived outside, no electronics, you're camping outside, you're waking up at the sunrise somewhere between 5.30 and 7.30 or so most uh, months of the year. Let's just say it's 6 a.m. When it's 6 a.m., you're going to get up, you're going to do your morning routine, those types of things. In an hour or so, you're going to be able to get a light breakfast. You wouldn't have hunted anything. You might have gathered a little bit from the day before. It's going to be light. You're going to get some water. It's going to be a light breakfast. Then... Your job then is to go out, gather food, get food. Not a lot to do, right? That, I mean, that's, that's basically what you're doing. You're working, doing those types of things. 
your larger meal is going to be after four or five hours or so, like lunch. Lunch is the largest meal of the day. It should be. Again, do I prescribe to this now? And do I even recommend it for people in my practice? Not typically, and I'll get to that. And then dinner. Well, let's say the sunset. Sunset's going to be somewhere around, what, four to eight. I mean, it can be a wide, wide array, depending on the months of the year. Let's just say it's 6 p.m. So you have 12 hours of light and you have 12 hours of dark. You're not going to be eating in the dark. Like, you're just not. Like, you don't eat in the dark. <laughs> People yeah. don't do that. <laughs> but we do because we have light. And then when would you go to bed? A couple hours after eating. Totally normal. When, now from a scientific perspective, when do we know the lowest level of cortisol is going to be? 9.30 p.m. Now, you can find tests, people saying, oh, no, my cortisol is actually high at night. Yes, that is actually called a diphasic dysfunction or dysfunctional diphasic rhythm. And it means that you have high cortisol at night and most likely you have lower cortisol in the morning. That's the very first sign that you're going into your first level of adrenal-based resistance. That means that your body is tired and wired, tired in the morning, wired at night. That is going to lead then to less melatonin production at night. If that happens, we know from a scientific standpoint, you're going to leave, live on average four to seven years less than you could. And we know that from long-term nurse overnight shift studies um, and all those studies because if cortisol is high at night, melatonin is low. There's a direct inverse relationship. You can't make one without the other. It's how it works. Also, your neurotransmitters are most likely going to be lower. Your serotonin is your happy, your feel-good neurotransmitter. Well, serotonin is being produced alongside melatonin. Serotonin is a precursor to melatonin, but then melatonin also gets shut off in the morning and becomes more serotonin. So is Ayurveda wrong in their schedules? No, but is it realistic to want to have to follow that schedule? No. So we, what we do is we're typically saying, if you're super stressed during the day, we're actually having your later, your larger meal typically when you can rest and relax at night, but it's still two to three hours before you go to bed. Okay. okay. So, so is your, your, I think I heard you once say that lunch is your lightest meal. Was that right? Breakfast is always the is... easiest to digest. Okay. Yes, absolutely. Is that why you're, you are, you're a fan of smoothies, right? In the morning? I, I can think of nothing better than a smoothie combining all of your macros in it, um, than, than that. Cause it takes so little digestive energy so people find after about three weeks of doing a smoothie, they don't need the coffee. And if they do, I say, well, you can enjoy a small cup, but after the smoothie so that it doesn't spike that sympathetic nervous system quite as quickly. Interesting. You don't ever see people with digestive issues from smoothies? We, we see everything, so for <laughs> sure. Um, the issue with smoothies are, one, you're drinking it too cold and it's the wintertime. So yeah. we'll add ginger. We'll wait about 20 minutes to 30 minutes before we drink that, so it's getting closer to room temperature. We drink the smoothie over 60 minutes, so that's slower to digest. Um, that helps with the glycemic control as well. And then also, there's just an ingredient. People sometimes put a thousand of their favorite things in a smoothie. Well, sometimes it's hard to digest a thousand things, just like a big salad with you know 50 different vegetables. So what we do is we just say, listen, we're going to give you an all-in-one powder or whatever you want. Just mix that with water. Drink it over an hour. Do you get bloated? If the answer is no, good. We move on to the next thing. Blend it with blueberries. How, do, how does it work with blueberries? Fine, good. Add in six ounces of nut milk with your water. Does that work? Fine, okay. Now let's add in some, um, let's just say Swiss chard. Does that work? No, I get bloated. Well, we, now we find it with Swiss chard. It wasn't the smoothie, but it was a Swiss chard in the smoothie because it's a raw greens, which a lot of people don't digest well. 
Yeah, I think the ingredients that people put into smoothies are definitely can be a, a main culprit. But I also just, I really like people to try and chew their smoothies because I think that there's something to that for sure with secreting the enzymes. But yeah, well, okay. Can we talk about, since you mentioned blueberries, I wanted you to chat about carbohydrates um, because I know you've been talking about this more recently and I think, you know, right now keto is so popular um, and I would love for you to touch a little bit on like how you feel about low carbohydrate diets and ketogenic diets and like who, who you would and wouldn't recommend those for. Yeah. And I know that I step on a lot of toes by saying this, but I really want people to know I have no allegiance to anything except the truth. I mean, that's the answer is like, if I thought keto was the answer, there's no doubt I'd be doing it. There's no doubt. I mean, I've been mm -hmm. giving nutrition plans for 20 years and I use low carbohydrate but who do I use low carbohydrate with? People with high fasting glucose in the morning, high blood sugar. And I use it for people looking to lose weight. And I use it for people um, that are not processing carbohydrates well so that their um, glucose at two to three hours after a meal is elevated. But do I use that for everyone? No. And do I use that forever? No, I use it for about three to four weeks. And the reason is, is because from a clinical perspective, a lot of the women that we put on low-carbohydrate diets, after about four to six weeks, you see their TSH start to creep up, above a two and a half, above a three. And we know that their body's going into more of a survival-based state. So any time that we swing a diet so far in one direction that it's almost devoid of one of the three macros, we're going to get in trouble. The keto diet is a great diet, but it's a medical diet. Make no mistake about it. It is a medical diet that should be used for long term under medical supervision. Because you are going to have major shifts in the body. Will you see weight loss in the beginning? Absolutely, like without a doubt. We use a low carbohydrate diet for the first three weeks of our weight loss plan. But then after that, we very strategically get those carbs back in fast. And the reason is this, there are huge downsides to the keto diet that nobody talks about. I feel like I'm the only one talking about it, you know, like the downsides, and that's because it's a really sexy fad diet right now, but that's what it is. That, and that's all it is. Can you, because, can, can you talk more about the downsides? Well, the downsides are ultimately carbohydrate resistance. So your body is not going to be acclimated to using carbohydrates in the proper way because it's devoid. So for, for those people who don't truly know what, and well, let me step back for one second. Most people are not on a keto diet who say they're doing a keto diet. So I just want to throw that out there. They're having too much protein. And what happens is, and we could spend a whole podcast just on keto, but when you have above, for most people, let's say 20% to 25% of your diet protein, you are going to kick yourself out of ketosis. But it's actually much, much worse than that. Because protein can allow your body to create sugar. It can go into a process called gluconeogenesis. It can actually use those amino acids to create sugar if it needs to. Now you're taking in 70% of your diet with fat and now you have sugar in your bloodstream. So if you want to talk about one of the best ways to give yourself cholesterol, triglyceride, liver, diabetes-based issues, that's it. High fat and high sugar. It's the worst diet you can be on. But people don't know that protein can do that along with the fat. Now there's another thing is that being devoid of that much carbohydrate does two things. One, you don't get enough prebiotic fiber. 
So that means that your microbiome is going to start to shrink. This is all, I mean, this is all scientifically proven. So your microbiome begins to shrink. Well, that also affects your immune system and it can increase intestinal permeability. It can increase, it can uh, decrease mood and it can decrease weight loss in the long term because of two bacteria called Formicutes and Bacteroides. They have to stay in good balance in order for someone to have good fat burning. The other thing that it can do is it can actually increase some autoimmune diseases in the long term. And the reason is that fats can lodge onto some of those bacteria in the gut and move them through the gut wall and into the bloodstream, which your immune system then targets and creates an autoimmune or molecular mimicry based situation. Another big thing that I see happen in my practice is a increase in sympathetic nervous system dominance, which people see as I've never had more energy in my life. Okay, that might be true, but at the expense of you shooting your cortisol through the roof because your body's in a state of starvation. It's in a starvation for glucose. Your body runs on fat lipolysis and glucose glycolysis. Your body was never meant to do just one. It was meant to go in potentially states of fasting, which I agree with. I'm a big proponent of fasting and autophagy, but I'm not in agreement with being keto for months. At no point, at no point do we know that the human was meant to be in a low carb, high fat diet for months at a time. This is a science experiment we are doing right now, and I don't want people to be a part of that science experiment when we know that the only proven anti-cancer foods out there right now are fruit and vegetables. I'm not against protein. I'm not against fat. But all I can tell you is this. There is not a diet plan right now that shows that eating bacon prevents cancer. On the contrary, we can actually say the opposite. Now, you can argue the point back and forth. I'm not here to argue that. All I'm here to say is brightly colored fruits and vegetables, if they don't make up the bulk of your diet for the long term, you're going to be in trouble. And it's going to be too late in your life to, to worry about it then. Yeah, I think there's there's a few important points in there. First of all, I'm seeing a lot of a lot of people saying that you know, we were meant to be in ketosis and we're our ancestors are naturally in ketosis and I just like don't really understand why they think um they can get away with that one. But I also want to talk about the the sympathetic dominant side of things because you'll see a lot of people saying if you have adrenal fatigue that ketosis is a great is is great to do because it, it calms things down your body doesn't have to deal with the stressful state of metabolizing glucose um but ketosis for addison's adrenal fatigue i sorry to stop you and sympathetic yeah. nervous system dominance is insane like that and i just have to stop you there because that's something i dealt with and i see a lot of people in my practice there might be nothing worse than telling your body that there's no carbohydrates coming mm -hmm. it's the only thing that cuts cortisol Fat and protein do not cut cortisol, only carbohydrates do, which is why it helps as a, as a post-workout food, as why it helps with breakfast. It cuts, I mean, it, it makes, that makes no sense. I'm not, I'm not saying you're saying that, yeah. but the keto-based people, like, it, I agree, it can be a great medical-based diet, but we have to be really careful to take something that is medically based and then go general population with it, especially for those that don't need it. If you don't have type 2 diabetes, if you don't have real like metabolic based issues with the cellular metabolism, I mean, there, there's just not a need for it. Not only is like, there's just not a need for it. <laughs> That's all I'm saying. Yeah. Well, and I really like your point of that. I don't think people are understanding that this is basically an experiment we're doing right now. Like 
when else has everyone just been trying to be in ketosis long term um, and people aren't understanding the long term repercussions. But I think I I, I would want to ask you what you recommend for people because I know a lot of people who are sort of fighting um, conflicting health issues. So let's say somebody has a HPA access dysregulation, whatever, adrenal fatigue, if you want to be layman's terms about it, right? Um, that, but they also have SIBO and candida, and so they're trying to, like, pull, go lower on the carbs. Do you, do you have people who are struggling with gut issues like SIBO and candida still reduce carbohydrates if they're still, um, like, struggling with adrenal issues? We have a 12-week candida bacterial overgrowth protocol that we've used, I would say, close to 10,000 times, maybe more, probably more. And we allow about two dozen fruit, three dozen vegetables, and about a half a dozen starches. They, so I went through all of this myself. I mean, I had some of the worst candida overgrowth that you could possibly imagine, you know, growing up through my stomach, into my esophagus, into my mouth, on the roof of my mouth. Um, I had SIBO and I had H. pylori. The only thing that they've never found is parasites. I've done many parasite-based protocols. Maybe that's why, but I've never had that. What I can tell you is this, is that if you go, it, you can starve out candida, but it never puts it back into balance, which means this. The second you eat carbohydrates again, the candida is going to overgrow. It's just the way that is. So is your long-term goal to never eat carbohydrates again? That's what I ask people. Like when you're on keto, is your goal never to come off of it? Because if you do, things are going to be so much worse than when you started. Unless it's strategic. Unless it's like we do, a lower carb, borderline keto-based diet, which people might dip in and out to, in and out of throughout the day, for three weeks to four weeks. And then you gradually add it back. So the goal of getting rid of candida is to make the environment inhospitable for it to grow and then to repopulate in a way that it can't overgrow because carbohydrates are not the enemy. Now, do I agree that the vata body type or ectomorph body type can eat more carbohydrates than the kapha or endomorph? Of course. The kapha or endomorph, maybe some can only eat between 75 and 150. But the vata, I can tell you for sure, I mean, especially a lot of vata-based athletes, the thinner body type, thinner joints, smaller calves, longer neck, you know, all of those things. 300, 400 carbs a day, no blood sugar issues, test their blood sugar two hours after a meal, back down below 90. I mean, it's, we have to look at bioindividuality. That's the biggest thing. But, um, so Noah, I mean, do I restrict carbs only to a certain degree on a candida based protocol? Because I let the herbs do the work. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad you're explaining all this because it's taken me a while. I mean, I've been on my own health journey for, I mean, it's been like four years now. And I look, I'm realizing a lot of things in the last year that I wish I had realized beforehand. And that was really one of them. And a lot of people in the last year, like, I've been like kicking myself out of ketosis after having had so many practitioners keep me there for so long. And I became super carbohydrate intolerant. Um, and now I look back and I'm like, oh my gosh, everyone is doing it so wrong. Um, and I just don't think enough people are, are talking about it and sharing that other side because it just becomes so standard. Like, oh, you have a gut issue. Okay. Go low carb. And it's, it, it can it's very cause short issues. Sentencing. Yeah. Yeah. Very short. Yeah. And the, the truth is that's outdated information. We know by looking at fructo, oligo, di, mono, and polysaccharides, 
lectin, oxalates, and other types of foods that you can narrow them down and still be able to eat fruit and vegetables. I mean, for example, you can still have broccoli on a candida-based protocol. You can still have blueberries. You can still have um, raspberries. You can still have other items like that, but you won't see other fruits. You won't see strawberries on there, and you won't see um, cauliflower on there. You won't see a lot of the high fructin ones. So, you know, it's understanding what's a prebiotic, what feeds things to a greater degree. And then even then, do we say like, never eat cauliflower again? Of course not. That would be, you know, not a good idea. So what we do is we add those back in at approximately the six week mark, but we do it very strategically. We say with a three day window, the only new variable you're going to add in is this. Do, Do you get bloating? Do you get gas? Do you get any distension? Do you get any constipation? Do you get any loose stool? If the answer is yes, then you are not ready for that food and we still have more work to do. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. I think that's helpful for people because I think it's just become so black and white into high carb, low carb, whatever. And it's more complicated than that. And like, you, like there's so many other things to consider, like other compounds and foods that can cause issues. Um, something else kind of going on the ad- adrenal fatigue roots for a second. I would love for you to chat more about kind of what you recommend for people who are having adrenal issues and in terms of exercise. Absolutely. So we have a four phase protocol and I mean, I've done a bunch of shows on this in depth. I know we're going, you know, we're, we're getting past surface level without a doubt. Um, I did a show on why candida diets don't work. Um, a show on, um, a bunch of these things, but I also did one of the four phases of exercise. And this is really important because one of the reasons why I relapsed so frequently, meaning multiple times per year, as I was trying to get better was that I would, the one thing I felt I could control was my body and the food I put in it. So I spent a lot of time at the gym. I was trying to build up my body to kind of, again, you know, compensate for the, the destroyed ego and how weak my immune system was. Right. So I got into natural bodybuilding, a lot of things like that. Well, what happened was it was too much and too much stress on my body. And essentially comes from nervous system stress. When we're talking about adrenal fatigue, what we really mean is hypothalamus pituitary adrenal dysfunction. And it means that there's some type of abnormal signaling or non-signaling after your body says we're in a stressful situation. So what happens is when we exercise, Some things are more calming than others. And when you're trying to recover from adrenal or HPA issues, you are going to do walking to start. And if walking is too much, you just do a little less walking. That's it, because you can't do less than walking. And what we do is we have to gradually actually stress the body. It's partly like a graduated exercise program. We move from walking to some hatha yoga, We do some upright bike neck, some cardio, and people might say, well, why would you do cardio? Why wouldn't you get into strength training? Again, like I've been through this and now my recommendations seem, you know, different than what I would have recommended in my early 20s when I was doing strength and conditioning. I was a strength and conditioning specialist and all those, you know, fun things is that anytime you pick up a weight or you do an exercise that's anaerobic, 90 seconds or less, we'll call it you're straining the nervous system. That's the exact opposite you want to do as you're trying to build up your reserves. Think of it this way, you know, I mean, if you're, um, if you're putting more energy out into the world, 
then you're not gathering it back in. Light walking, hatha yoga, even doing a, a gentle sauna, stretching, upright bike, all these things elicit a parasympathetic nervous system activity. And that means the body goes into what's called the um, rest and relax, rest and rejuvenate, rest and digest. It begins to heal the body. After that, after the cardio, we'll do some body weight training. And then eventually we'll do what's most popular right now, and that's HIT or interval-based training. Again, do we recommend this in my practice? Absolutely, but not for someone that's recovering from adrenal-based issues. It's interesting because that's like kind of the exact opposite of what most people recommend. Most people would say that like steady state cardio would be more taxing on the adrenals than something like some resistance training. Why why have they said that? I actually haven't seen it. Really? Um just because you're kind of like for a long term um like like over a long period of time you're, you're exercising basically and you're putting you're increasing your cortisol for a long period of time and keeping it high um and kind of going back to the argument of how we evolved like who was who was running for an hour right like it would be in oh, short sprints sorry and i don't mean running um we're talking about using the upright bike at a light speed to increase oxygenation of your body okay so you're talking more about like like walking exertion well, we have walking first, and then the next level up from that would be like a hatha yoga, a gentle stretch and flow-based class, mm-hmm. and then it would be getting on an upright bike and moving uh, your body at a speed which would be biomechanically faster than walking, but you won't elicit a cortisol response with that. You actually you get a cortisol response when you add a greater stimulus to the body, such as an interval-based sprint or pushing. Now, I'm an advocate of sprinting. I'm an advocate of resistance training. I mean, that's what my practice has been since, well, from in the 2000s for many years. But that um, a long distance run for a long period of time, which is not what we're recommending, will increase cortisol over the long term. That's true. But every time you strain the body, you increase nervous system output. Whenever you increase nervous system output, you increase sympathetic nervous system dominance. Mm-hmm. So whatever exercise we're talking about, for someone coming out of adrenal-based issues, we talk about doing resistance exercise at one set. We ask them, are you tired the next day? Do you have flu-like symptoms? Do you have brain fog? Do you feel run down? Do you have lower mood? Is your digestive system worse? If the answer is no, then we increase to two sets. We don't increase the load but we increase the sets, not the reps. And then we say, how does that feel? They say, oh, that's about my limit. I was sore the next day. I was you know, feeling a little bit more run down, lower mood. So okay, let's keep it at two sets. How do you feel the next week? Okay, this week I'm fine. So what we're doing is we're using that principle, the said principle, specific adaptation to impose demands to allow our body to get used to a little greater stress, but not push it past what we can do. Also keep in mind the anaerobic training that we're doing uses a different process than the aerobic. Oxygen is aerobic, anaerobic without oxygen. If you're doing anaerobic training and you're low carb, well, now you're asking your body to do something that's never meant to be done. It can do it, but it's going to do two things. One, you get cortisol levels high enough, it's gonna break down your own liver glycogen. If liver glycogen is gone, it's gonna break down your own muscle tissue. You're gonna start to become more catabolic. Because your body, no matter whether you like it or not, 
if you are in sympathetic nervous system dominance, your heart rate is up high after a sprint, whatever it is, and you're 30 minutes into a HIIT-based training, if there's no more glucose and there's no more liver glycogen, your body's tapping into muscle. It is because there's no other fuel source. You can't use ketones or break down body fat at the speed at which your body needs fuel, and it will always survive. So unless we go back to what is fast glycolysis, slow glycolysis, aerobic, anaerobic training, then we're giving people uh, misinformed advice, and that's why we have to be smart about this. We have to really think about you know what is the best training for people, and if there's adrenal issues, there's no – I mean if you just think about it too, I'm tired. Should I push my body really hard? The answer has to be no. And sometimes as doctors and practitioners and health coaches, we way overthink this. And we have to go back to Chinese medicine and look at that yin-yang symbol. Well, the yang is the hard and the yin is the soft. In our society, we have too much hard. It's go, go, go. It's electronics. It's EMFs. It's toxicities all the time and it's depleting our yin. Well, what is sprinting? What is hard training? It's yang. What's hatha yoga? What's meditation? What is walking? What's binaural beats, right? What's a good conversation with a friend over dinner? That's yin. We need to balance the yang. That's the thing that our entire society is missing where we go to people and they put us on low-carb diets, they give us vitamins, but they don't talk about lifestyle. Well, there is no vitamin in the world strong enough to combat a lack of sleep or no carbs. Not yeah. for that long. I'm, I'm really glad you brought that up because I think that's a huge piece of it. And I mean – Especially like going back to the exercise, I see so many people are mismatching their exercise and their diet and then making things worse. Um, and I'm just, I don't understand how people aren't taking into consideration. I think a lot of people are so focused on the food and they don't look at the lifestyle, like you just said. Um, and kind of along the same lines, which I think is interesting, is like, I heard you talk about this before in terms of the time at which someone exercises during the day. And what your recommendations are for like, should that be first thing in the morning? Should that be after breakfast? Should it be in the evening? Yeah, that's a good question. That That is person dependent because if it's a general population, healthy person, I mean, any time before 6 p.m., mm -hmm. as long as it doesn't rev them up and hurt their sleep, because what do we want to do? Well, we sit at desks most of the day, so we need to move our body. That's paramount to me. But then we get into you know, specific populations. And it's, what, the, what should they be doing? Should it be fasted, not fasted? And we can come up with many contraindications for everything. And that's why everything I'm saying today, you could without a doubt find a, a contraindication, you know, another scenario, without a doubt. There's no way. And that's why, like, anyone could take the words I'm saying and misconstrue it and say that it's wrong because of this. The, without a doubt. I'm agreeing with you. I, I totally agree with that, that there's a certain situation for everything. And if we're going to stay on the fatigued general population, if you work out first thing when you wake up, although it can be the most convenient, and you are not getting your eight hours of sleep, and you are fasted, and you decide to drink some black coffee, you're driving your cortisol and stress levels through the roof. Now, people say, well, I do that because it gives me energy. Yes, it does. That's what cortisol does. And so does dopamine. Exercise does both. But the problem is your body does not last forever at that pace. I mean, how long and how far can you drive a car at 100 miles an hour before it just burns out? 
you're going to burn out the oil. You're going to burn out the gas. You have to pit stop. You have to have what's called a periodization model. And you also have to look at your lab levels. And that's why, like, if you're a healthy individual and you're doing great and you get sleep and you eat pretty well, then you can work out first thing in the morning. And it can even be fasted. But again, it depends on you. It depends on your hormones, your dopamine, um, all of those output. Like, are you the Vata body type? Probably not first thing in the morning then because you're already revved up. And now you're taking the level when you're most revved up during the day, which is when you first wake up, and you're spiking that. It's the same thing. It's unpopular that I say this to people, but cold baths and cold showers are not for everyone. What does it do? Stimulates the sympathetic nervous system. Wakes me up though, right? Feel great. Well, yes, of course. It stimulates dopamine as well. But the person that's naturally in an anxious or stimulated or depleted state, they need the warm, the calming shower. They need the warm, the nourishing food, the cooked food, not the big salads. So it gets complicated. But honestly, if you think about where you're at in life and you think like, I know I sit on the couch most of the day, sluggish, eat a lot of carbs. Well, you should move more. And you should maybe sleep a little less. And you should do workouts in the morning. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. I think it's really interesting because I think it's counterintuitive for a lot of people. Like I see a lot of people who are struggling with their adrenals and they put on weight. And so then they go for, okay, I'm going to look at what's fat burning. And they see things like cryotherapy and keto diet, you know, take a cold shower and um, exercise fasted. And those are all things that you're saying can just increase sympathetic dominance and then you're just making things worse um so it kind of it is a metabolic issue i mean people i see it all the time we even i mean we have a we have an online health group it's about four thousand people even in our group are trying to be nice and give advice to other people which i love Mm -hmm. but they're saying losing weight losing weight ultimately comes down to an energy calories in calories out and for people that are eating a thousand calories a day and exercising an hour, three, four days a week. What would you like them to do? Eat 600 calories? Yeah. Exercise five days a week? Like, is that really the answer? No, it, it's a, and then you see other people, they're five, eight, female, 110 pounds, eats all the carbs, you know, that she wants. Is it a, is it a calories in, calories out? Well, sure from her particular metabolism and she most likely doesn't have the thyroid issues, the estrogen dominance, the malabsorption issues in the gut, et cetera, right? So there's, you know, there are layers to this and to put people down and kind of just say, well, you just need to exercise more. You just need to eat less. Well, again, like how little should people eat that before they're just totally malnourished? It doesn't make sense. Yeah, I agree. Like people don't think about there's an end point here. You can only cut calories for so long until you're just not eating food. Um, There's just more to the story. I think kind of going off of this topic, which is really something I wanted to chat with you about was the whole idea of detox because detox is a really popular topic and like um, we see like (laughs) these really dumb ways of detoxing, like all these skinny teas and then there's like a real proper detox. Um, and I would love for you to talk more about like who, who should do a a detox program and like, how do you go about doing a proper functional medicine detox? 
this is and this is a great topic. I love to talk about it. I went on a little rant um, on my my podcast about this, and I never do that because again, like I live and breathe this industry. I love this industry, but the problem is we use the term detox as health professionals for anything. It's I saw this product and it was like, okay, it's a greens powder, it's a probiotic, it's this, it's this, and I said to myself, what does that have anything to do with with detoxing? Like, <laughs> how does that detox the body? I'm like. Doesn't make sense. Then I saw a very popular uh, podcast, and I think they're doing amazing work. And they said, "Do our New Year's detox with us." And they gave you the food plan, and you know, they gave you this for breakfast, that for lunch, and this for dinner. But what people are mistaking it, this as are elimination diets. So they're not detoxes, but eliminations, and those are amazing as well. But we can't confuse that with the natural process that our body does of detoxes because then we see in the media saying, oh, stay away from detoxes, they're just made up and this. Well, they are when you talk about it when it's not really a detox, meaning that our liver filters all the blood in our body every six minutes. And it does that every single day whether we think about it or not. That's an automatic process in our body. And it does that to filter out the normal metabolic process of the hormones and the food that we eat. Everything gets transported essentially from the – gut-associated lymphoid tissue to the liver and everything gets processed and then your liver says, okay, this can go into the bloodstream. So what happens though is we also are exposed now in 2019 to 77,000 man-made chemicals and our liver has to process those as well. The average woman leaves the house right now with 127, being exposed to 126 chemicals, shampoos, conditioners, each one of those contain about a dozen Lipsticks contain heavy metals. Moisturizers contain all sorts of things, all sorts of byproducts. Toothpaste contains all sorts of byproducts that are toxic. Our tap water comes with pharmaceuticals in it, fluoride, chlorine, etc. So now our liver is dealing with that. Well, one more reason why people gain weight is because your body, when your liver can't keep up, and yes, it can't keep up, it does its job, but eventually it just it can't filter out everything it disposes or puts it in your adipose tissue. Well, your adipose tissue swells like anything else along with water. So now you're holding on to all this toxic water weight. And it's doing that, that's because your fat will hold on to that toxin and it will never let it go unless you ask it to burn body fat. So what happens is your fat becomes 300 times more toxic than your blood, which is why if you do a crash-based diet, you can feel terrible. You might get skin rashes and headaches and migraines and all sorts of issues, and that's because your body's having what's called a Herxheimer-based reaction. Your liver is now flooded with all these chemicals it once stored that it has to clean out. So this is when a functional medicine detox is crucial, not for people that just need to lose weight, but for people that live in 2019. So in Ayurvedic times, they did this with every season, every 12 weeks. I recommend the same, even more important now, today. And what it does, I won't make this super complicated, because it can get complicated, but simply put, your liver has two phases, a phase one and a phase two. One has to do with enzymes. It's called the cytochrome P450. It basically just takes all these toxins and it uses vitamins like vitamin C and B6 and B12 and folate and uh, vitamin E and glutathione to break things down to a simpler form. Then your bo- it's a, called an intermediary, met- intermediary metabolite. It's still not safe to get rid of. Then your body uses sulfur-based amino acids, cysteine, taurine. Um, We have uh, glycine that help to produce more glutathione. Sulforaphane is a great nutritional product as well. Well, we can find these in kale and in broccoli 
and asparagus and avocado and other great products. Well, this is what enables our body to then take those harmful toxins and excrete them in our bile, which comes out in our stool. We excrete them uh, in the urine or we sweat it out or huff it out through our lungs. So that is why giving your body phase one and phase two nutrients on a functional medicine detox that gives your body those nutrients, not hard to find uh, that, I mean, I'll tell you right now, if people can only do one thing, that's all, that's what I recommend. And then maintain it with good nutrition after that, every 12 weeks, seven days. So basically you're looking at just like a high quality supplement that contains all of those, those nutrients. Along with a specific fast. So autophagy takes place after approximately 18 hours. So what we do, we're using a, a three-part product for our detox, and it contains the phase one and phase two with enough amino acids to allow your body to not go into too catabolic of a state, but it won't spike your blood sugar to keep you in a fasted state for at least for the most part, meaning that you might come out of it for a half hour to an hour and then back in. So autophagy can take place so that what that means is this, when your body has no new substance coming in, in terms of basically food product, it can go and it can work on the immune cells and everything else can work on the old, what's already in the blood or being disposed of in the blood as your body's beginning to break down body fat, right? So your body might actually touch ketosis by the end of day two. And then at that point, okay, well, it's controlled because we take you out of that for lunch on day three. So autophagy, it's an amazing principle. It won the Nobel Prize in Oncology, which was cancer-based research in 2016. The greatest thing we have right now, the closest thing we have to the fountain of youth is autophagy without a doubt. So you're, so you recommend within that detox an 18 hour fast? Is that what you're saying? Well, we're actually doing a two and a half day fast with okay. just the nutritional supplements. Is there anyone who you don't recommend does that? Anyone um, pregnant, nursing, liver issues, um, I would say kidney issues as well, mm -hmm. and then um, going through cancer-based therapy currently. Okay. What about people who have trouble with detoxification, like if they have the CBS mutation or COMT or MTHFR? Um, like what do you do with somebody who has trouble with sulfur based compounds for detox? Yeah, absolutely. So what we're doing is we're giving them both the end state and the previous state to it. So that's why, I mean, this is when we talk about detox, like it's, it's a real, you know, it's a real, uh, in-depth topic. And so some people, uh, for example, the easiest one to look at is folic acid. So about Anywhere about 36% to 42% of the population is some type of MTHFR uh, gene mutation. And that means that they're either 33% occluded or 70% occluded from being able to convert folic acid to usable methylfolate. So your body takes in folic acid. It becomes uh, essentially 5-methyl tetrahydrofolate, which is the usable form by your body. Well, a lot of the products out there right now, when you look at a multivitamin, they're just folic acid. That's going to build up and become toxic in a lot of people. So we give prenatals to a lot of women, but at least a third of those women that are pregnant should never be using a prenatal that contains folic acid. It's dangerous for them, dangerous for the child. So in terms of a detox as well, we're using food for a lot of those um, 
sulfur-based components, but we're also using sulforaphane. We're using N-acetylcysteine. We're using precursors such as zinc and selenium, um, as well as reduced glutathione. So what we found in our practice is that not giving megadoses, which is where a lot of people seem to have issues with, but allowing their body to do it more naturally is the way to do it. Because we know that with the gene mutation or not, you still need to detoxify. And you are able to, just to a lesser extent. Um, and we've gotten fantastic results with it. Now, if people are having a hard time by the end of day one, will we say, no problem, this was your first detox. Why don't we move into then your day three through seven plan, which includes a specific shake and supplements, uh, a vegan-based lunch, a shake and supplements, and then a paleo-style dinner at night. We'll, we'll end it earlier. Because what are we trying to do? We know that this is a lifelong process of optimizing the body. We're willing to say, you're having a more challenging time. That's okay. Doesn't mean you failed. You've eliminated a lot of those toxins. Let's now just ease your body back into it. But then also, don't just stop. On a daily basis, give your body the nutrients it needs to do its job. Yeah. I'm curious. So it sounds like you le- it leans like a lower protein diet during that as well. Um, do people, what do you do with people who are struggling with hunger? <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't say that it's lower protein, but low, it's still about 0.8 grams per kilogram of body weight, which is, um, where most, most good research still holds up in terms of, um, the protein that you take in. However, I will say, of course, the first two days are not that that's of course, uh, because that's fasted. So we can't have protein coming in because it does two things. One, too much of it can bring up blood sugars and kick us out of the fast. And the second thing that it does is we're trying to lower levels of IGF-1 during those days. It's not our goal because our goal is to focus on more of a parasympathetic, relaxed, uh, rejuvenating-based state. And I'm not saying that IGF-1 isn't necessarily a bad thing. At an accelerated state, it is because it's more of a proponent towards cancer. So um, for satiation, there's no doubt that hunger is going to creep in on day one and no doubt that there's hunger going to creep in on day two. I mean, I'll let you know right now. I don't know when this is going to be published. I'm doing our seasonal detox. I practice what I preach. It's one of the reasons why I feel better than ever. Four times a year, every 12 weeks, January, end of March or beginning of April, right before the 4th of July, before summer kicks off. And in September, after summer's over, that's when I do my detoxes. Our whole community basically joins in and does them. And I have hunger. There's no doubt about it, but that's the beautiful thing as well about fasting. You learn about your body, your mind, your relationship with food. We have an endless surplus of food. Anyone listening to this podcast, you have access to food. When I was over in India, there were many people that don't. So what it does is say, I can go a day or two without eating. I'm going to be fine. Not only that, I'm going to be better off for it. And I listen to that hunger. I drink my water. I have 80 ounces of shake that day. Each shake comes with, you basically mix it with 20 ounces of water and I'm hydrating my body. I'm flushing my body. So I would say once day through seven kicks in, people have a whole new appreciation for food. They're eating vegetables like they never have before because that's what they get to eat. So they're excited about it. So um, it changes your taste bud, changes your palate. Uh, it's, it's remarkable. And I just recommend, I mean, I can't recommend it enough. Yeah, so so we kind of covered like you know the supplement side and, sh- and diet side. What about lifestyle um, t- what types of detoxification? Do you have any recommendations there? 
Yeah, absolutely. A few of my favorites are waking up and uh, before you get in the shower in the morning, doing just a two-minute dry brush. Mm-hmm. And if you don't know what dry brushing is, easy to look up. It's a very gentle form of essentially, in Ayurveda, they call it abhyanga. And you can even use self-massage with um, sesame oil. And you're moving the lymphatic system. So your lymphatic system is one of the greatest uh, systems in the body that's never really talked about. And basically, it's what moves all the toxins through your body, moves fat. If you're on a high-fat diet, keto-based diet, and you have lymph stagnation, I mean, it's the, the, the downfall to that is, is quite large. Uh, no one ever talks about it as well. It's like if you eat 70% of your diet from fat, you better hope that your gallbladder is working really <laughs> well. Like, And you better hope that you're producing bile, that you're producing enough stomach acid to be able to pump that bile into your liver. I mean – Again, people never think about these things, and I get worried. But anyway, uh, one of my other favorites are Epsom salt baths and a nice hot bath. Put in a cup or two of Epsom salt or maybe a couple drops of your favorite essential oil. Um, I love infrared sauna or regular sauna. I mean the the results behind that are amazing. And that's what I like people to focus on, especially for the first two days of a seven-day detox, and then get back into more of their exercise um, as they enjoy it days three through seven. Okay. So – you, um, you, you obviously like the, the fasting during the detox. What do you think about people who are doing like intermittent fasting daily and or people who do fast more regularly? So <clears throat> it's funny how we take ideas and extrapolate the data and turn it into a daily routine. That's my issue with the health field. And we've always done this. So let's not, I mean, I'm not going to say that I'm innocent of it as well, right? So when I first started out, 18 years old, went to college, had my health issues, studied, became a nutritionist, became a personal trainer. I knew I could fix my food and I knew I could fix my body, right? I couldn't fix the health, but I could do those things. When stability balls came out, it was like every exercise we did with a stability ball. When TRX came out, we did everything on TRX. When kettlebells came out, we did whole kettlebell workouts. Kettlebells are a great addition as part of an overall workout. Stability balls can be a great addition to an overall workout. Same with the TRX. But do we want to make our entire routine about that? That's always where we go wrong. We get this overreaction in the short term and then basically an underreaction in the long term. Like now people are against cardio and they're against stability balls. Like they're against all these things. So with fasting, our bodies were meant to fast. And the greatest results come from essentially a one day a week fast. I typically do Sunday night to Monday night. So I'm still eating dinner with my family when I go home Monday night, but I'm fasting all day on Monday, weekly basis. Every 12 weeks, two to three days, it mimics more of our ancestors, right? Could be even longer. And then yearly, it could be even a longer fast. That would be a normal fast. Our ancestors purposely did not starve themselves. That was never the goal. The goal of our ancestors was actually to put on weight. People forget that because putting on weight would allow them to survive times when there would be no food. We we just don't get that process, meaning like harvest time in the fall are foods that would help us pack on weight for the winter. We would be lower weight in the winter. Spring comes, foods come out. Oh, we eat more of those foods. More of the fruits, more of those different types of things. Makes sense. We're sweating more. It's summertime. Again, this is what Ayurveda teaches, but it's at a very deep level. So 
Intermittent fasting, to answer your question in a very long-winded way, uh, most people don't do well with fasting from dinner to lunch. And again, you don't have to believe me. You can just run a thyroid adrenal hormone panel. Look at your cortisol. Look at your thyroid. Just look at your levels. Look at your estrogen dominance. And then, um, but most people do great. And so in our practice, 12 hours. Stop eating two to three hours before bed. And again, is there a contraindication? Yes, always. 1% of the population needs to eat before bed because they have hypoglycemia. And they really should have a little something probably before bed, satiate their body, keep the blood sugar level stable, et cetera. And that should be probably fat, protein, et cetera. Okay, but most people, 7 to 7, 7 a.m. or 7 p.m., stop eating, 7 a.m., um, start with lemon water, start with a little bit of um, your greens or whatever you like, and then an hour or so after you get going, have, a, have your breakfast in the morning. So anywhere between 12 and 14 hours, but once you start getting going, can't kid yourself, like your body should have some fuel in it. There's nothing wrong with that. Do you think it's important for people to have breakfast like within that first hour of when they wake up? It all depends on how stressed they are. If you're getting the kids ready, if you're rushing off to work, if you're always stressed in the morning, or if you're someone that's more catabolic, you trend towards more losing weight than gaining weight, then yes, absolutely. Because your body is going to get the fuel no matter what. We can't, we have to stop pretending that, oh, I'm just going to tap into body fat. I need to become fat adapted. Your body is already fat adapted unless you have a very particular hormonal imbalance. Everyone is fat adapted in the aerobic zone and everyone should be glucose or glycogen adapted in an anaerobic zone. If you have black coffee in the morning, and it spikes your blood sugar. Again, how do you know? Just use a glucometer. Have a, have a cup of black coffee. Take your blood sugar a half hour later or 20 minutes later. Is your blood sugar over 95? You're, you, you can't fool anybody. Your body now has sugar in it. But you only drank a black coffee. This is what people are never explained. Your body has its own sugar in it. It already has it. It has 120 grams in your liver approximately. It has another 400 or so in your muscles. You're not depleting all that. If you deplete that, you're dead. Like that's just the way it is. So like we need to go back and really look in depth to our, how, how our body works. And so do I think you should overdo carbs in the morning? Well, it depends on the person, right? I mean like it really depends. <laughs> I mean like are you an ectomorph? That should be the predominance of your breakfast. If you're not, if you're someone that has trouble losing weight, well, no. Maybe half a cup cup of um, blueberries or low glycemic fruit along with other food as well? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Okay. That's helpful. But it, you think that if they're not, if someone's not very stressed out, it's not as big a, a deal for them to like not eat in the first hour? Oh, yeah. And I think people can go an hour or two yeah. uh, upon waking. And I typically recommend that. I don't think your stomach is ready for food right when you wake up. Um, typically you need to get your body moving. That's why the, the lemon water, uh, the warm water, the herbal tea, ginger tea, anything like that is totally fine. A little lime with a pinch of sea salt in there, totally good to go. Um, and then after that, I mean, but the truth is you can do your temperature upon waking. Is it below 98? You can do your heart rate. Is it below 65 or at least below 70? Um, what's your fasting glucose? Like you can look at that. How stresses your body? Simple parameters. They'll give you a lot of data and it's close to free but without even running a lab test. Yeah, that's a great tip. I'm curious, what's your morning routine like? So I've – that's why – I mean I want people to know. 
I'm not over here spouting things that I haven't already messed up on in my life. Like I've learned these things because I pretty much did everything wrong for 10 years. But that's why I'm not upset that it took me so long to get well because I had the good fortune of doing everything wrong. So I know pretty much the candida diets don't work. And I know the super low carb doesn't work. And I know that fasting for this doesn't work. I know all of these things, doing a carnivore diet, doing all of these things that, you know, would take 10 hours of podcast to do don't work. So, you know, what works is balance is creating equilibrium and the balance is different for each person. So for me, since I'm more of what's called a Vata Pitta or Vata, my predominance is towards Kapha, but my mindset, meaning my my drive, my get up and go, all of that is quite high. So the last thing that I need to do in the morning is stimulate that to a greater degree. So I work very hard as someone that recovered from Addison's disease to properly regulate my hormones, and that includes cortisol and adrenaline as well, right? Because adrenaline is the precursor. It's basically gets the body amped up. So I have a very slow morning routine. I wake up before the rest of the world so that I'm not, you know, it's just my time. It's quiet time. And what I wake time up, is that? It's between 5.30 and 6. Typically right around 5.30, my body wakes up. Okay. Okay. And might be a little earlier during the summer and a little more towards 6 during the winter. And during the darker months, body needs a little bit more sleep. And that, that's normal. It's totally normal. And that is a period of more rejuvenation. So as I wake up, um, I do the same routine every morning. I've done the same routine now for three years in a row. And it's, it's a huge part of my life. So to make it short, I basically wake up. I do what's called uh, my daily fruit vegetable blend. It's just 22 organic fruits and vegetables, greens, no sugar in it. And um, I squeeze lime in there, a pinch of sea salt. And sometimes I do um, a little half a teaspoon of manuka honey or raw honey. And I don't know that because I wake up with a fasting glucose of around 72. People think you put honey in your water in the morning, aren't you going to you know, go into diabetic shock, you know, it's like, well, when you look at honey, it has five grams of sugar per teaspoon. It would take at least eight grams for it to even register in your body, like as spiking your blood sugar. So that little bit of sweet helps with the absorption and it helps my blood sugar come up from a very low 72. Now, if yours is 90, you wouldn't do that. That wouldn't make sense. So after that, brush my teeth and I immediately start to get ready for the day. And the reason I do that is straight out of mindset. I've found that if I dilly-dally, if I read a little bit, if I meditate, I get into more of a sluggish space state. So what I do is I tell my body it's time to start the day. I put on uh, a great podcast, something that's motivating, a YouTube video that's motivating, whatever it might be, and I get my mind right and my body right. I go through my morning routine, basically just dry brush, um, shave, get the shower, and I get ready for my day. And then that's when I start my day, which is essentially, um, going through my morning movements. And those are, it's a light exercise routine. This is very different. This is not my workout for the day. I do one set of chin-ups, squats, push-ups, lunges, and what's called a boat pose with a twist. It's called a Russian twist. I do that to activate my body, move my lymphatic system, wake it up, oxygenate it, and I engage my core things that I need for posture. This is not a workout. It's not strenuous. At no point am I overly stimulating my body. I don't even go to failure. It's just to get the body going. Then I make my smoothie. I also do oatmeal in the morning. And um, 
that is also what I'm making for my two daughters as I wake them up as well. And then I head off to work. Okay. And then do you have a time during the day, like that's for you for reading or writing or meditating or anything? Absolutely. I essentially take, um, which again might sound selfish, but I take three hours per day, one hour before the rest of the world wakes up another hour at lunch and then another hour before bed, which is also both, it's my wife and I's time. It's our quiet time where we get to talk, put the kids to bed. We get to, we get to read, we get to chat, we get to watch TV, whatever we want to do. It's our time. So I found that I can be my best for others and give away, I'm up for let's say 16 hours a day. So I'll take three and I'm going to give 13 hours to everyone else. And what I found is that if I don't get a little time for myself, it's hard for me to be at my best for everyone else. So I take care of myself and then I'm able to give that extra time to others. Now, I have my own workout routine as well. Some of that's on the weekends, some of that's during the weekdays as well. What I found work for me because I'm so busy at work is I now do Tuesdays, Thursdays and Saturdays, Sundays. And it changes based on the season, like the spring, summer, I'm a little bit, I'm much more active because I'm, I'm doing sometimes sprint triathlons, things like that. Um, which by the way, for me saying that I even do that compared to someone that had Addison's disease is ridiculous even to say, but, um, but anyway, I've just, I want people to be selfish. I want them to be selfish for a couple hours a day to understand that if you take care of yourself, you're going to be so much better for others. And it's the quote that I live by. It's a quote by Jim Rohn. And he said that, I'll take care of me for you if you take care of you for me. We're always so worried about taking care of other people that we neglect ourselves. And then someone ends up having to take care of us. So take care of yourself, get yourself well, and then share that with others. I think that is a great piece of advice to end on. I think more people need to hear that. I know I certainly always need that reminder as well, but it's so true. And I think that's why so many people are just burnt out now. Um, We live in a really fast-paced society and people definitely are not taking time for themselves. So I love that. I need to write that quote down. Um, But thank you so much for sharing all this information. You are a wealth of knowledge and I could pick your brain for hours on end, but I just feel lucky that I got to do it for this hour. I was... Could you just tell people where they could find more information from you? Because I'm sure they're going to want to learn even more from you after this episode. Yeah, I'd be happy to. And I really do appreciate it. This is a a great interview. You asked a lot of amazing questions. Many I've never been um, asked before. And you are, of course, open to these ideas because these ideas are controversial. And I don't mean them to be. Everything that I do in my life is simply dedicated to helping people find their answer. And that's why... Everything that I said today may not be the right answer for you, but the thing is that I'm not against keto. I actually recommend like you might want to try it. You might want to try a lot of things, and the reason is that you need to find the blueprint that ultimately works for you, but remember what works for you because you have that then for the rest of your life, and even if you're 60 years old, 65 years old, listen this to you right now, we're increasing longevity. You have at least 20 years to probably 30 years of life left left. So, you know, I I talk about these things on a daily basis. They're over at um, the Cabral Concept podcast. And uh, my main website is stephencabral.com. And if anyone's interested in just learning about the detox, learning about the labs, they're over at equilibriumnutrition.com. You don't even need to purchase them, I tell people. Just look at what they are. Familiarize yourself with it 
so that you just have one more basis point to kind of see what, what path might be for you. So thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. Huge thank you to Dr. Stephen Cabral for coming on and sharing so much knowledge. I am sure you guys learned a lot and I am excited to hear what you think about this episode. You can find him at stephencabral.com and make sure you let him know what you thought about this episode as well. I'm sure he would love to hear feedback. As always, if you enjoy the show, please leave a rating and a review on iTunes. It really helps me get the word out about the podcast. And if you liked it, share it on social media. Send a screenshot to family and friends. Let them know that this episode will help them out. And you can also join us in our Facebook group, Wellness Realness Podcast Tribe, where you can meet other podcast listeners. It's a great place to be, so just search for that on Facebook. Thanks again for listening. That's it for this episode. I hope you have an awesome day and I will talk to you again next time. Bye.